0: And I'm very pleased now to be joined by Stan Grant. It's been a while since we had uh, him on Triple R. We have invited him this time to speak about his experiences for over a decade as a foreign correspondent in Hong Kong and Beijing. Stan is one of 25 Australian journalists who have contributed to a new book called The Beijing Bureau, which aims to capture stories from what has been an extraordinary period of media reporting, not just for the Chinese people but the world. Uh, Welcome back to Triple R, Stan. Good morning.
2: Hi, it's a pleasure to be uh, to be with
0: you. Good. Uh, yeah, I understand the idea for this book was sparked yeah. when the last remaining uh, Australian journalists left China, or those at least uh, reporting for Australian news agencies. Was yeah. that a shock to you when that happened, um, to have uh, those journalists leave China? Um,
2: not necessarily, because this has been coming for some time. And, you know, the, the tension between... The international media and the Chinese Communist Party um, has been very acute. At the time that I was there, we faced constant disruption, interruption, um, arrested on several occasions, detained on several occasions, threatened with expulsion. Other journalists had been expelled. But I think what this did do is that it was a punctuation point. It said that here is a country, and remember, Australia had, had really been pivotal in opening China up to the world in the 1970s, before Nixon went to Beijing to sit down with Mao Zedong and, and and you know, have that rapprochement between the United States and China, um, Gough Whitlam, as opposition leader, as he, as he was at the time then, had also gone to Beijing and has helped to sort of oil the wheels, if you like, to bring China back in from the cold. And Australian media had been an ongoing presence from that period on. So it really was a punctuation point. And it said that relations between Australia and China had now reached a new low.
0: Yeah, and as you mentioned there, and you write in your article in this new book that uh, it became harder and harder to report from China in the in the time that you spent there. Um, you were there when Hong Kong was being handed back to um, yeah. back by the British after a century there um, of Hong Kong um, being yeah. controlled by the British, and then you were stationed in Hong Kong. Um, can you speak about? But just take us back to what it was like when you first started to report from China.
2: Yeah, look, it, it was remarkable. And, you know, from about 1997 right through until now, you know, well over two decades, I've been thinking about, writing about, reporting on or living in China. So it's been the most uh, profound and continuous um story of my journalistic life the reporting of china and to see enormous change come to that country 1997 was more than just the act of handing hong kong back to chinese mainland it was for the chinese avenging history hong kong was like a scar on the chinese soul it spoke to that period of plunder and humiliation it harkened back to the opium wars with britain where china was displaced as the center of the world displaced as the great power of the world and then of course there was a century of what the chinese call a century of humiliation occupation by foreign powers the slaughter of the Japanese occupation. So in many respects, watching that handover wasn't just about the symbolic gesture of one flag going down and another flag going up. It marked a real turning point of history. And I was standing on the border that night in the driving rain up on the border of mainland China and Hong Kong and watching the People's Liberation Army just stream across the border to to go into the barracks in Hong Kong and reclaim that territory. And it really was, for me, a moment of a return of history. History was being made again and very much leading us to the point that we are now.
0: Yeah, and you write um, in your article that history hangs heavy in China yeah. and, and that the future may be in the past. And, I, I mean, look, I found your article quite profound, actually, when I was reading, reading it. But you, I mean, talk about your response to that because it feels to me yeah. that you brought with you, um, well, history hangs large for you too, hangs heavy for you too.
2: Well, it does. It does. And, you know, when I came to write this article, I mean, the great thing about the book is that each of us, uh, as correspondents, have brought something of ourselves to the telling of this story. There are Australian correspondents of of Chinese ethnicity who who obviously have their own relationship with the country, others who have looked at it through an economic lens, others who have looked at it through through a political lens, Um, what it was like to live there. We all brought something different. What I wanted to bring to it was the eyes through which I look upon the world and as an indigenous person I see the world fundamentally differently I am not I am in the west but I am not of the west and if the west is predicated on this idea of endless progress of a forward movement of history. You know, in the West, they talk about the end of history, as though you reach a point where all the great struggles uh, have been resolved. um, And they see that as the fulfilment of a liberal Western dream of what the world should look like. Well, of course, on the other side of that history, are Aboriginal people who have experienced empire, colonisation, genocide, Muslim people who have seen their lands invaded and borders redrawn, North Korean people, um, Chinese people where, as I say, have lived through a, a century of humiliation. I wanted to look at what it was like to come from the other side of history, and when I was in China... I I gravitated to those stories. I understood the pull of history in that country, how it shapes the Chinese soul, how you live with that history all the time. It's not something you get to move on from, but you carry with you. Um, And and I wanted to sort of bring that lens to this. And of course, there is a long connection of indigenous people as well to China Um, and in the 60s and the 70s with the sort of cultural revolution. Many people in the world, particularly colonized people, look to China as a model of some form of liberation, misguided perhaps, but a form of liberation. And I wanted to bring all of that to the piece that I wrote.
0: Yeah, and I mean, in doing that, you speak about an Aboriginal delegation that travelled to China in 1972, yeah. um, not long yeah. after that visit from Nixon that you spoke about right when we started this conversation. Can you sort of, I, I suppose, tell that, just tell that story Isn't of what happened? it's
2: incredible? I mean, it, it, you know, it's, again, one of these little, little known facts of history that often just gets swept away, but in the 1970s, and this is, this is the height of the Cultural Revolution, Mao Zedong is still in power. Um, there is this enormous upheaval and turmoil across the country. Um, And an Aboriginal delegation led by people like Chica Dixon, who was a well-known Indigenous activist here at the time, and a lot of young Indigenous people who were um, who were studying at university and were very much heavily involved in the burgeoning Aboriginal political movement of Australia. Remember, of course, in the in 1972 we saw the erection of the Tent Embassy. Um, there was an influence of, of Black Power politics out of America, the Black Panthers in America, and in the same way that. Mao Zedong and the, the Communist Party had represented uh, a model of liberation and revolution to others throughout the world. So it was that Indigenous people as well looked at that as some form of inspiration. Now, an Indigenous delegation went there, they were toured around Beijing. They they met political leaders. Um, And of course, reading some of the the reports of the time and and what the, the, the memories of the people who were part of it, they were saying, you know, they went to a place where suddenly they weren't seen as being Aboriginal people or they weren't seen as being, you know, something that could be derided or mocked they didn't feel the racism there that they felt here in Australia. And I think that was a very liberating thing for them. Now, of course, remember, the Cultural Revolution was a brutal time. Um, many people, perhaps like well over a million people, killed. Hundreds of thousands of people um, locked up. Millions of people, indeed, sent down to, uh, to, to, to work in the, the farms and so on as part of this revolutionary period. Mao Zedong was a, a brutal... Leader, but at the time, this was this represented something for Aboriginal people looking for their own political voice, and I draw that analogy again between how Aboriginal people, with our history, recognised something in the history of China and what it had endured uh, vis-à-vis the West, and and there was something there that connected. And I think that, that delegation spoke to that
0: connection. Yeah, and you felt that connection too. We're speaking with Stan Grant. He's uh, written an article for a new book called The Beijing Bureau and there's uh, he's one of 25 Australian correspondents that have contributed to this collection and a really Im- impressive collection, actually. If you could get hold of the whole thing, you could read them all. But we're just speaking with Stan about his contribution this morning. And, and your, your article's called Built on the Memory of Wounds. Stan, can you speak to that uh, title a little bit for us? Yeah,
2: it, it comes from um, um, a line in, uh, in, in a poem by the, the Polish uh, Nobel Prize laureate and poet Czeslaw Milosz, who talked about the memory of wounds. Perhaps all memory, he said, is the memory of wounds now. If you're Polish, of course, and you understand the history of Poland and occupation and slaughter and, of course, World War II, um, the memory of wounds hangs very heavily there. Um, Cecil Milosz himself, although raised in Poland, was a Lithuanian. And, of course, Lithuanians inherit their own memory of wounds, mm. empire and occupation and war. Um, it's, it's when your past and your history speaks deeply to your sense of place and identity in the world. And again, I I think it challenges a a Western linear idea of progress in history where you discard history or you wear history more lightly. Um, There's many virtues to that. I mean, we know that carrying your history very deeply with you can also lead to unending conflict and we see this around the world the the wars of history the wars of identity um but it is it is something that is inescapable when you have lived through trauma when you have lived through massive upheaval you will carry the wounds mm. and the scars of that and i see that in china i see that with my own people i've seen that in parts of africa and the middle east i've seen that in afghanistan i've seen that in korea i've seen that in Russia, where there is a dark night of the soul, a deep dark winter that never leaves you.
0: And I mean, as you you, you know, list all of these different really conflict zones in in um, either right now or in the past. Um you know, this next question might sound a little bit daft, but I was going to say, you know, no, we, we no, hear no. about the rise of China and and we hear about the Asia century. And, I mean, do you feel that, well, even the Australian government in its relations with the Chinese government shares this sense or understands um, the wounds that you're no, speaking of?
2: No, I don't, I don't think the West understands that. And it does shape, look, it does shape the way that we deal with China. Um, there is no doubt, and we should be in left in no doubt, that when you were talking about the Chinese Communist Party, you were talking about a regime that doesn't allow freedom, that crushes dissent, that crushes democracy, that locks up Uyghur Muslims in just horrendous numbers, that occupies Tibet. Um, we, we, are, we are talking about, you know, an oppressive regime. But it's more complicated than that because it is also uh, a regime that has lifted 700 million people out of poverty, that has transformed a country that could not feed itself into the second biggest economy in the world, soon to be the biggest, and the single biggest engine of economic growth in the world. It is Australia's uh, biggest trading partner. It is an indispensable nation in the world. It is a permanent five member of the UN Security Council, a member of the World Trade Organization, a member of the World Health Organization. Um, It is part of a global order and yet it rejects the notions of political liberalism and democracy. And that challenges the West. That is an enormous challenge for the West. And I think where we often get things wrong is not in not calling in calling out some of the abuses of the Chinese Communist Party, but not understanding how our words sound. So when you get something like a call, as we saw last year, a call for an inquiry into the, into COVID, without speaking to the Chinese or negotiating with them, to Chinese ears that sounds like Western humiliation again. We need to be cognizant of how history hangs heavily there and what they hear in the way that we speak to China, doesn't mean that we have to kowtow, but it does mean that good statecraft and and diplomacy is an awareness of the people that you are speaking to. And I think we need to be aware of the depth of that history. I think also for the West, this is an existential moment as well. As China went through that disruption with with the fall of the Qing empire and the opium wars, and the disruption that China went through, Push them into a dark night of, their, of the soul. The West is also facing that with the rise of China.
0: Yeah, and I was, I was going to ask about, I mean, you, when you were in in Beijing and also Hong Kong reporting, you were uh, um, reporting for CNN. And yeah. so you, and I mean, it wasn't easy times at all in, the, in that period with US-China um, relations with the governments there. But I wonder, I mean, so you've sort of Navigated this yourself, even with with yeah. friends in in China, your 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 staff, your driver, and you speak about that experience of being people together, really, um, mm. a human to human, but also navigating this this political, um, you know, government relation situation as well. And it's all all together; <laughs> like you can't sort of separate it's one from question. the other.
2: Yeah, it's it's a really good observation you make because. On the one hand, you know, I was working for CNN, um, a massive international news organization, American news organization, and so, To the Chinese, ostensibly, regardless of being an Australian, let alone an indigenous Australian, I was an American. I was branded with the CNN brand. And that meant that I was in a a hostile relationship often with the state. Um, As I said before, you know, uh, my family was under surveillance, I was under surveillance. We were often detained by Chinese police trying to do our jobs. It It was a tough period to be a reporter there. So on the one hand, I'm being seen as a as a, an enemy of the state and a, and a representative of, of America and the West and on the other hand I'm an aboriginal person knowing that actually I find myself in the, the crosshairs of this I I understand where this chinese impulse comes from and I'd have fascinating conversations with my chinese colleagues and friends and my driver who is a a great became a great personal friend and a great family friend um, and uh, and and we would have these great conversations about china and he would talk about history and what it means to Chinese. And so we were sharing that sort of cultural and historical relationship. But at the same time, I was, um, I was a reporter working for CNN with, with a big target on our back.
0: Yeah, fascinating. I mean, the account that you give in this book is really remarkable. And I guess I'm, I'm I'm curious what you get out of of contributing to books like this, Dan. I mean, you've got a lot of um, media work that you do. I didn't even say that you've got a yeah. role at the ABC, international affairs. Yeah. I didn't even I just introduce you as your own self um, and and contributor here. You've got a lot on. What do you get out of contributing to to collections like this?
2: I love, above all else, I love writing, I think, you know, I've worked in television, but essentially I've always seen myself as a writer and I've written six, seven books now. I've got two books out at the moment. One of them, With the Falling of the Dusk, deals specifically with a lot of these issues. So I was thinking about these things anyway, and With the Falling of the Dusk takes a bigger sweep. China, of course, is part of it, but I look at Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Korea, Africa, um, right across the world, all the places that I've reported, and how... I've navigated that as an Indigenous person and looking at that fault line of history. So I was thinking about those things anyway. And um, so when I was approached to write this book, it was an opportunity to, to bring that perspective to bear. I knew that it was a perspective that no other correspondent could or would have, because they're not me. You know, we're all different. We all bring our own lens to this. My lens is as an Indigenous person in the world, and there is no other Indigenous person who has the breadth or length of that experience as a foreign correspondent or the depth of that time in China. And so it was important for me to bring that Indigenous perspective to bear um, while trying to also pull the lens back and look at what history means and how history shapes us and our identities and our and our politics and how it shapes power and challenge some of the assumptions around Western universal liberalism that clearly don't apply when you look at a country like China. So writing for something like this was a, a cathartic experience. It was a useful experience. And, and it's something that I love to do because it helps to connect the world for me. It helps to make sense of the world for me. And if I can do that, then hopefully it raises questions and helps to bring some clarity for the reader as well.
0: Yeah, and that look that all shines through and as does your um, real love of of the Chinese people. So I really appreciate it, Mm. Stan. Thanks for... Thanks for speaking a with me pleasure. on JPLR this morning.
2: Thank you so much. Great, great, great questions. I, I really enjoyed the, the chat. Thank you so much you're for joining us. You're so lovely.
0: Thank you interested. very much. <laughs> Listen to us. Um, Stan Grant there. Um, you can hear him on the ABC, but he uh, is also a contributor to this new book. It's called The Beijing Bureau, uh, 25 Australian Correspondents Reporting China's Rise. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, a really fabulous read, actually. I mean, we really should bring you more conversations from it. Um, there's um, a whole range of different, contributors, but I, I guess I just commend it. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. In Melbourne and really all around Australia, thousands of people took to the streets over the weekend to, among other things, raise their voices against the humanitarian crisis being made worse due to the renewed violence inside Israel and the Gaza Strip. Uh, there are calls for journalists um, and f- uh, from journalists to journalists in the media to do better on Palestine, especially as buildings housing media organisations have been targeted, including the building housing the Associated Press, which which was bombed by Israel over the weekend. Jeff Sparrow has put his name to an open letter um, alongside almost 600 other journalists and media workers, writers and commentators, uh, and it's addressed to editors and publishers, and saying do better on Palestine. And Jeff, it's always good to have you on Triple R, and um, we do pick the kind of really serious issues, and do better on Palestine is one of them. Um, tell us more about what it's about.
3: There's a widespread sense amongst the public, but increasingly amongst journalists themselves, that the media's treatment of the Palestine issue has been fairly woeful, that it often just amounts to a series of uh, cliches, um, you know, discussions about... uh, uh, Incredibly complex situation. Clashes have taken place. Lists of casualties. Quotes from you know U.S. Um, presidents, and that's about it. And so, when this latest crisis emerged, um, a few of us scrambled to get together a, um, a, a a document that we called on other journalists to sign. As you said, it's. The take-up of it has been uh, quite astonishing. It feels like something really has changed in the in the media. You know, the, the signatories now include kind of a who-do of Australian journalists calling for four major points. So the first one is we're calling on editors and publishers to make space for Palestinian perspectives. I think that's been one of the most lamentable aspects of um, media coverage in, in, in recent years, that the Palestinian themselves almost never get to speak. They're spoken about, they're represented, um, but they never get to put their own perspective. And that leads to, I think, a dehumanisation, which um, enables uh, the Khanis the to continue. So that was the first point. The second was to avoid uh, what we call both-siderism, the treatment that's, that, that simply equates both sides if they're equal, when, in fact, we're dealing with uh, a nuclear-armed state on the one hand and the Gaza Strip, which is one of the poorest places in the entire world, on the other. And so simply to equate the two sides as if they are equal adversaries misleads um, the public as to what's going on. Thirdly, to reject the kind of... um, Passive voice formulation or weasel words, simply talk about things like clashes but doesn't actually explain who is doing what to whom. And fourthly, to allow uh, journalists and media workers to publicly and openly express their personal solidarity. Palestinian, of course, because anyone who's worked in media has known will know that there is tremendous pressure that is applied to people around this issue, and very often people feel scared to actually voice their personal opinions, and so we think that they should have space to be able to do
0: yeah jeff i mean that 's interesting, I, and I wanted to speak to, with you about each of those issues a bit more actually about the, that last point. You are someone who is uh, expresses your views you 're on social media, you write really widely. Uh, do you feel that pressure? Look,
3: there's a, there's a lot of talk in the, um, around cancel culture and, you know, political correctness gone mad, but if there is one issue around which you are more likely to lose a job than anything else, it's Palestine. And so I think anybody who speaks out on the issue is, is always aware that by doing so, you know, you are kind of putting your um, head on the chopping block to a certain degree, but I think now that the tide is beginning to turn, That you know, what people are seeing is so ghastly and so abhorrent that people feel that, you know, they have no choice um, but to speak out. But, I mean, it's clear that, you know, lots of people's careers have suffered, by being seen to be too forthright on it. And there are plenty of people, we had that response when we were trying to get people to sign the letter. There were a number of senior journalists who said that they, you know, agreed with us privately, but they didn't want to um, jeopardise their career by saying so publicly.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's really a, a really important thing to, to know, I guess. And, I mean, what is it that uh, the pressure is around for for those to report on Palestine, I mean, I know that over the weekend, Associated Press and and other media um, organisations have been expressing their dismay that their building was actually bombed um, by Israel, and it that the the reasons given by Israel was that it was um, being used surreptitiously for um, by Hamas and others. So there is this sort of debate that happens that those of us standing in Australia can't actually interrogate that, we, we do rely on the media on the ground to tell us those stories. And what we've been told from the Associated Press is that uh, they are concerned and, and did not believe that that was happening in their building. Um, so is that sort of part of it too, that media are being targeted here?
3: In what other context would it be considered appropriate to simply say, oh, I don't know, an enemy of mine is hiding in the ABC building, I think, so therefore I'm going to destroy the entire building. I mean, there's no other context in which, you know, uh, that would happen and then the world's journalists would just sit back and say, oh, oh, well, then... um, You know, Al Jazeera's building, AP's, Associated Press's building, has been (laughs) destroyed from the air, and, you know, well, you know, they said that Hamas might be amongst it, so that's fine, you know. It's extraordinary, It's just extraordinary, and Amnesty International is now declaring that, you know, that should be investigated as a war crime, and I think that's clearly the case, but... It's symptomatic, I think, of a climate of intimidation. Why um, are airstrikes being conducted on a media building? Well, you conduct airstrikes on a media building, but you don't want people to know what is taking place. And, I mean, it just seems to me that um, anybody who's got any interest in press freedom needs to speak out against that kind of intimid- <laughs> intimidation. And it's not simply about um, striking uh, uh, buildings that contain um, press bureaus either. The, the very idea that simply because you say you declare that a terrorist might have um, and might be inside a tower building, that you can just destroy that building. I mean, this is—it's just—it's an, astonishing, and it's a complete violation of any notion of you know civilized conduct in in um, in in, in, a, in a time of war. And people should oppose it. It seems to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's happened—it's happened before, media being targeted and um, by Israel. And I think um, you know what. what We are hearing an outcry about it now from media, particularly those that are directly affected. Um, Has it been less vocal in the past, the the broader international media, Jeff, on this issue?
3: Yes. I mean, I think we are definitely seeing a a, a, sea change. When we we started... uh, canvassing journalists about this do better on Palestine. Um, open letter. We were really uncertain as to what kind of response we would get, and you know the the calibre of journalists who signed on to to, to to that letter is kind of unprecedented. There's a similar campaign happening in Canada at the moment. Um, you know, I, I think now that the situation is so egregious, you have organisations like Human Rights Watch, which is you know a very mainstream um, organisation, declaring that Israel is an apartheid state. We have the um, the, the Israeli uh, human rights organisation B'Tselem also saying that Israel is guilty of a crime of apartheid against um, against Israel, and yet almost none. Um, of the mainstream politicians in this country or in the United States will speak out against, you know, a a state which, as multiple human rights organisations have said, is engaged in systematic discrimination against... um, the people under its um, under its control, and you know when you look at what's happening in Gaza, Gaza is essentially an open air prison. It's one of the the, the the poorest and most miserable places in the world. Completely controlled um, on all sides by um, Israel, people cannot leave. There's very little in the way of um, resources for people there. There's mass unemployment, and now it's being repeatedly struck um, by airstrikes. Um, in this absolutely horrendous situation. And I, and I think now that people are beginning to th- beginning to see that, um, uh, you know, this cannot be allowed to stand, you know, that red lines have been crossed and people need to speak out against it.
0: One of the other points, um, and you, you, you mentioned the four points that are on the open letter, do you better on post-Palestine open letter, Jeff? And one of them, I think the second one was avoid both side of and, and I guess that's interesting to discuss because say with reporting uh, we expect to hear both sides uh, and it's something that um, is I guess being set up as the way that that reporting is done and I guess you know there's been criticism over the years of, of both sides being reported because sometimes there's more than both more than just two sides for instance there's lots of different perspectives but with regards to this uh, is the way that we report um, at, uh, the concern here, or is it particular to this this conflict that we um, are disproportionately reporting one side versus the other?
3: So, journalists are trained to do Some Journalists are trained to talk to one antagonist and then the other antagonist and present um, both of them. You know, person X says this person Y. Says that, but there's all sorts of contexts where that's simply not appropriate. So, one um, other instance would be around climate change, for instance, increasingly we would not expect journalists to say, Here is a scientist, and here is some you know, um, stooge for the fossil fuel industry. You know, and let's give them both um, and an equal say. I think, in the context of of of, of this crisis, what we mean by both siderism is presenting um, the, the the parties in this conflict as if they are equal entities. You know that. Whereas overwhelmingly, over the last decades, the vast majority of the deaths and um, injuries that have taken place in the crisis have been on the side of the Palestinians. It's the Palestinians who are being, um, who are the victims of apartheid and it's the Israelis who are the perpetrators of apartheid. And a media report that doesn't make that clear is deceiving its readers. So we're not calling for the media to suppress the truth. We're calling for the media to do better, to explain to its readers what's taking place. And simply presenting both sides as if they're equivalent um, obscures the reality that there is um, a state that is perpetrating the crime of apartheid, and there are people who are from that crime and if you don't tell your readers that then you're not telling them the truth.
0: It's really interesting in that context then that we do have um, the real challenge to report on the ground in Gaza so there's another aspect of the do better on Palestine and that is to um, consciously and deliberately make space for Palestinian perspectives and I'm I'm assuming it's not just on the ground there but uh, is that call also for Around around the world to speak to um, uh, Palestinians living in Australia, for instance, and and other other people from in different parts of the world.
3: That's exactly exactly right, Kelly. I mean, we definitely need to hear more from the people in Gaza themselves because, as I said before, they they feature on our TV screens just as crying victims, but we never hear. Or we very rarely hear about their daily life, or so what it's like to live under an apartheid regime. You know, in a um, open air prison from which you're policed on all sides, and the destruction of the Al Jazeera and AAP and an AP offices is part of um, preventing us from hearing those voices. But also in Australia, that there is a, a community, a Palestinian community. Um, In Australia, and over and over again, they talk about how difficult it is they find to get access to the media, that the articles that they pitch are constantly rejected, that whenever they appear on, you know, a TV or a radio show, um, they often find themselves being cancelled at the last minute. Um... And it's very, 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 very rare to hear Palestinians themselves talking about um, what it's like to be um, watching on TV when you, you know, your your family and your um your friends in Palestine are under under assault in the way that they have been over the last few days. And so, I think that you know there's been a general push in recent years for the media to be more diverse and to try to you know not simply to have you know the, the same. Um, middle-aged white men as talking heads but to give some space to to a diverse range of, of voices and here's one issue I think where it's increasingly important that that should happen.
0: Uh, Jeff Sparrow is with us and uh, he's lecturer in journalism at Melbourne University, um, a, a columnist and um, journalist, and he is um, one of those who has put his name to an open letter called Do Better on Palestine. You've also been writing on this issue, Jeff, and really have... Um, put forth a, an argument um, or a, a, well, really started a discussion about um, a one-state solution, I guess, in, in the Middle East. And I guess they put this forth more to really help Australian people can sit, think differently about what's happening in Israel and Palestine in the context of what's happened in Australia. Can you sort of talk to what your argument is there that people can, can catch in overland?
3: Yeah, so we're often told that the situation in Palestine is so complicated that you know we can't understand it. But actually, if you're an Australian, it should be fairly easy to understand what's happening because there is an obvious analogy settlement of Australia itself. So Israel is a colonial settler state. Australia was a colonial settler state. And so if you read the accounts of the early white settlers in Australia, they constantly talk about themselves as being under assault from Aboriginal people. They talk about Aboriginal people carrying out um, acts of terror against them and being prone to violence, and then and then they posit their own massacres or dispersal of Indigenous people as acts of self-defence. And when you hear that rhetoric from the 19th century, it's remarkably similar to the rhetoric you hear from the Israeli spokespeople, who also present themselves as acting in self-defence when they do things like uh, uh, attack Gaza. Now, when we read those 19th century accounts today, most of us have no problem in saying, well, actually, these accounts by the Set Australia talking about acting in self-defence are simply not true, that what was taking place is the settlement itself was an act of violence, was an act of dispossession in which Indigenous people are being gradually forced off the land and then were fighting back in self-defence. And I think you can see something similar if you look at the situation in Israel, which since 1948 has been a process, a constant process of... um, of, of dispossession, quite analogous with what has happened what happened with um, the settlement of white Australia. Now, there is one major difference, which is that very early in the Australian settlement, um, the Europeans became uh, a majority in the country, whereas in uh, Palestine, uh, increasingly the, the demographic, shift, demographic shift means that Palestinians will be, if they're not already, a majority in the country. And in that context, maintaining a settler state is only possible if you have a consistent discrimination against um, the original occupiers of of that country. And so in that respect, the situation in Israel is akin to another colonial settler state, which is uh, apartheid, South Africa. And so when you think of those analogies, I think it, it, it makes it a lot easier to understand what is taking place, and it also allowed, it allows you to think about how we might respond. In the Australian context, if someone told you that Australia should be identified as a white Christian state rather than, rather than one for Indigenous people, you would say that that was... Um, Racist and should be opposed. Likewise, the idea of an ethnically defined state in a way that Israel defines itself is a legacy of the past that most of us are simply not prepared to accept anymore. We don't think that states should be defined by particular ethnic groups. We think that people of different ethnicities and different religions should... Um, have the same rights as each other under a single democratic state. And, you know, that is what eventually happened in South Africa. And there's no reason why it can't happen in Israel-Palestine uh, as well. To me, it just seems like a, no, a, a no-brainer a no that this discussion around, you know, different states for different ethnicities is based on a kind of 19th-century logic of, you know... Um, of, of ethno-nationalism, but most people simply would accept any other context. And you know, um, South Africa was able to move from uh, minority rule to uh, to a, a state in which everyone has at least formally equal rights. There's no reason why that can't happen in Palestine.
0: You know, um, a a Jewish friend of mine over the weekend was saying she had family members of hers on the street um, as part of the protest over the weekend and um, there were people, Indigenous Australians at that protest and, and, you know, a whole broad spectrum of people and I guess at the same time she was saying, you know, she and those that went to the protest have big concern about family in Israel, of course, but also a real nerviness around um, hate towards Jewish people because of what's happening at the moment. And I guess, you know, I I, I wonder your thoughts on on that, Jeff, when we talk about this conflict, that it doesn't actually lead to issues all all over the world, I guess.
3: Yes, I think that um, anybody who is concerned about social justice needs to stand... um, Overtly and very forthrightly against anti-Semitism. You know, they actually have seen a rise in anti-Semitism. You know, one of my other projects has been writing about the far right in Australia. Um, And it's clear that, you know, anti-Semitism is is on the rise and needs to be opposed... um, ..needs to be opposed as well. But to me, the two projects aren't incompatible. You know, that, in fact... Um, If you're opposed to racism, you're opposed to racism of all sorts. And, you know, an opposition to anti-Semitism is not incompatible with an opposition to ethnically defined states as as well. So I think anybody who's concerned about Palestine should have no... hesitation in denouncing anti-Semitism in any way, shape or form, Um, you know, whether you see it online or or, or anywhere else. And there's no incompatibility between doing that and um, supporting Palestinian rights.
0: Well, I've um, given this a lot of space this morning, Jeff, because I think it really deserves to be, you know, fully heard and I really appreciate it. And I look forward to speaking to you again in about a month's time. Next time, Dylan will be here too with his questions. Excellent. A pleasure as always. Catch you soon. Jeff Sparrow there. Uh, He is a lecturer in journalism at uh, Melbourne University. You would have heard him for many years here on The Breakfast Team as well.
2: Triple. Uh.
0: And while the federal government continues to tout what they call a gas-led recovery, at the state level, the conversation is sounding quite difference. Uh, We're um, here in the Victorian government is looking to phase out gas connections to Victorian homes as part of a shift to net zero emissions by 2050, which means pretty much halving emissions this decade, uh, which is the state's target. Uh, Dean Rombard is with Renew, a member-based organisation which, among other things, has been supporting households to shift off gas for some years now. And um, thanks for being there, Dean. Welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Colia. Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it might be the first time many people have even thought about running their home only on electricity. Why is the government itself starting this conversation now?
1: Look, it's great that the government's having this conversation now because, I mean, as you know, and a lot of people have been talking about it for years, it's really about uh, a couple of things, I think, and the, the big one is that gas historically has been a low-emission fuel, but that's no longer the case as... And if we're going to get to net zero, we actually have to get off all fuels that have emissions and that includes gas. Uh, And I think the Victorian government's realised that you can't just let this happen. You actually have to manage and plan a transition like this so that it actually works out lower cost and more effectively for everybody.
0: And so, I mean, what you're understanding, um, Dean, is it likely to affect only new homes, what the, the government's talking about, or existing homes too?
1: uh, The detail of what the government's, you know, they're really just starting the conversation. Uh, I expect it'll, it'll need to work out to be done differently for new homes as for existing homes. It's sort of easy to do this stuff for new homes. You can change regulations. You can support the market. You can, you know, encourage through various mechanisms to install the certain fleet of appliances in new homes. And you can set up new estates without gas. You can make it harder or ban connecting new estates to gas, for example. For existing homes, it's harder because people are already connected to the gas network. They're already used to gas appliances. Uh, and it's, and people also, they're unwilling to change often because, especially in Victoria, you know, we love gas. We've always had gas. But not really for that long when you think about it. Uh, but, but, you know, it's hard to make a change. So managing it for existing homes is a bit more difficult and needs really depth sort of policy development, which hopefully the process of Victorian government is looking like starting will address.
0: Yeah, I mean, Renew is national and um, I, I guess, you know, I was, I shouldn't be surprised, but I sort of was surprised that Victoria really is alone in the, in the country, Victorian homes that is, for being so dependent on gas.
1: We certainly stand out as a state overall. Um, about 80% of Victorian homes have gas connections um, and that's that's all the main cities and towns. Uh, a lot of people who are off the gas network still have bottled gas. Gas is just part of Victoria, it seems. In other states, it's a bit more broken up, I guess. Like there's parts of So, so For example, even though New South Wales has much lower gas connection rates, there's parts of Sydney where gas is just as entrenched as it is in most of Victoria. Uh, Certainly in WA, there's a fair bit of gas. And so it's sort of in pocket. Canberra has heaps. Um, Hobart has barely any. You know, it's sort of different in different places.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I noticed last week with the Victorian government, think, um, talking about gas itself, there was also a report came out um, from the Climate Council, I think it was, that was looking at the health effects of gas in our homes. So it's sort of coming, one, it's a net zero emissions push from the state government and the other is also a health push. Is that sort of how you see it too, Dean, that there's a couple of reasons now why people might start? you know, looking at their appliance mix and thinking about um, installing electric where there's currently gas?
1: Yeah, look, there are really three main issues. And one is, one is emissions, obviously. Uh, one is the health. And, you know, the research on that, it's relatively new compared to some of the other stuff on, you know, the, what we've known about emissions. It's sort of emerging in the public conscious elite. But the other area, and one that Renew has also been focused on, is just the economics of it. It's actually cheaper for households to have all electric appliances than to have dual fuel, gas for, you know, heating hot water and cooking and then electricity for everything else. And that's a surprise to a lot of Victorians because uh, especially, you know, those of us sort of, you know, in our 30s and 40s and above, we've grown up believing this myth that gas is cheaper for heating hot water and that, and it's actually not true.
0: Yeah, so when, I mean, when you talk about cheaper, it's like the the running costs. What about the sort of upfront, appliance costs because I know um, at Renew that you've been giving advice out for a really long time to people about you know what what is the most renewable way to run a home what is the the healthiest way to run a home Um, and then the economics is also part of that is it sort of cheaper now to have up front to have electric appliances now too compared to gas
1: look it's a bit variable um but definitely the upfront cost is offset by low running costs over time in most cases. Uh, and then it depends on the appliance. Like heat pump hot water systems, which is a newer technology for electric hot water, is at the moment quite a bit more expensive than gas hot water. Uh, that will change as the industry develops more. Um, and, and part of the reason our gas appliances are so cheap is because the industry is so established here. Um, things like Stoves, um, you know, gas stoves versus induction electric stoves, which are much more responsive like gas stoves compared to the older uh, ceramic hot plate electric stoves, uh, they're more and more getting closer in price. Uh, in terms of heating, look, one of the most dominant forms of gas heating in Victoria is um, uh, you know, ducted gas heating, and that, that, they're actually very expensive systems. And while ducted electric heat pump systems are also quite expensive, if you use uh, a few split systems, Spread around the house sort of strategically, you get pretty much the same effect as a ducted gas system, but actually for a lower upfront cost as well as a much lower running cost.
0: How big a shift do you think this is in thinking? Do you think for for Victoria Dean?
1: I think that's the hardest. That's the hardest thing, both for people and for government and for industry, is that we're so wedded to gas. It's such a difficult thing for people to think of doing it differently you know people are very attached to their ducted heating systems or their you know gas space heaters that you can stand in front of and feel the heat hitting your body directly uh people love gas cooking and but basically haven't experienced induction electric induction cookers that are as good as gas in terms of sort of control and that um people don't really care about hot water i guess but we're just used to gas and i think that's the biggest thing for people. It's just like, no, 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 I want my gas. And, you know, anybody who's ever looked for a rental in Melbourne or in one of the larger Victorian cities or at the top of the list is for most people, they're always like, has it got gas? We want gas. That's the hard thing to shift. It's also been hard for governments and policymakers to shift. And I think it's really good to see that shift happening as they've sort of realised that they're in a bind. You know, they need to get emissions down. There's cost issues that are more and more obvious. And even if we, even if people weren't into, even if the government wasn't into getting enough gas, it's sort of inevitable anyway, because gas is incompatible with zero emissions. Gas supplies are getting stretched in Victoria, like our local gas supplies have only got a few more years left then we'll be on sort of you know getting it from other states which is far more expensive so gas is sort of unsustainable on so many levels.
0: Well it's really interesting Dean Lombard's with us he's with Renew and we're speaking about getting off gas because uh, one Dean and Renew have been talking about it for a long time um, but the Victorian government has started this conversation with us they're looking to see homes in Victoria uh, not Run gas appliances or not even be connected to gas, um, which is a new discussion which has just started and I, I guess Dean, I mean with the experience uh, that you 've had speaking with household households about this directly i mean what what do you think the Victorian government is going to need to do if they really are to really convince Victorian households that all electric homes are the way and actually that's the only way that we're going to meet the the new emissions targets that the state government has just announced?
1: Yeah, look, it's pretty tricky. I think part of it is um, good good information for people just to understand the emissions and the cost to, to sort of a like, I guess debunk those myths that gas is low emission and that gas is cheaper. That's part of it. But I really think they need to work with the industry a lot because especially when we talk to people, like, as you know, we do sort of one-on-one sort of assessments for people who are doing work on their houses to, you know, upgrade appliances and stuff like that. And one of the things that they often find is that, you know, they've got a builder, they've got their tradings and they've just got their appliances that they use and, you know, you really have to push hard a lot with the builder or the traders to get a different appliance to the one that they want to put in. Uh, That's just how it works Um, and and, and I think that the industry needs support to understand I guess to understand the different technologies better and to also I guess just understand the issue and how it connects with everything to move to new appliances. So I'm not sure the best way to do that is probably a combination of um, some training and some regulations and some subsidies maybe. I think we really need to encourage industries to sort of look wider. One of the issues that we find biggest actually is hot water systems because people usually replace hot water systems when they fail, right? Otherwise they never think about it. And then one day they've got no hot water and then it's like, Oh my god! I need a new hot water system by tomorrow morning, right? But no one wants a cold shower. Um, that's when old gas hot water systems get replaced with new gas hot water systems because it's the quickest and it's the easiest. It's sort of plug and play, pretty much. You know, the plumber's probably got one in the back of his truck. That's the sort of thing that we need to prep the industry for and people for to think about when it is time to change my appliances. What should I replace it with? And then be ready so that when that decision point comes, they're ready to make change.
0: And not to jump, jump too far forward in the conversation that we're we're just starting really as a community Dean, but is it likely that we'll get to the situation, say, with what happened with incandescent lights, like they actually just aren't on the shelf anymore? I think we're
1: really in the end, um, because, you know, as we were saying before, you know, gas actually does not fit with a zero emission future. It has to at some point. And when you think about what drove incandescent lights off the shelf, it was actually the opening up of options for people to change over through, you know, some subsidy sort of programs, and and then it was sort of regulation that sort of came in over time and transitioned them out of the market. And the same sort of approach will be needed for gas appliances. It'll be more tricky because you know a, a stove and a hot water system is a bit more complicated than a light bulb globe in terms of you know taking out and putting in. But that's. That's the sort of thing I think that we'll need. And, and some of the, I think that they're already doing some of that stuff even without this sort of new policy roadmap they're talking about because already under like the Victorian government's like solar homes program, which is where you get the big solar panel rebates and that one of the rebates that they offer is for an electric heat pump hot water system where you can get quite a big, I think about a thousand dollars subsidy on the purchase price of a new electric heat pump hot water system. So if you own a house and you're ready to change your get hot water, that's actually helping you make that choice a lot more easily. So stuff like that, I think.
0: Oh, you heard me almost say something, because I was just thinking, you know, this is like the entrails of what we're talking about here and the complexity of of the shift happening. Um, Is it challenging then for Victoria to have one conversation and then federally where we seem to be having quite a different one, which is around seeing gas as very much part of the the kind of energy mix into at least the near future, Dean?
1: Yeah, look, it's a bit difficult. And, you know, you've touched on a whole bigger issue, which is that gas in the home for appliances is one thing, but gas has this huge role in our know, energy system and gas is used to generate electricity, gas is used to power equipment in industry and that's a bit more complicated to electrify in some cases. It is tricky having contradictory conversations but I think on the other hand um, I think we're pretty used to it. It's been years since the federal government has had anything resembling an energy policy and all the states are now driving energy policy and these sort of issues and that's the Labor states and the Liberal states. They've all realised you know, they've got skin in the game, they've got to do something You know, in the end, it lands on the state government. So, I actually feel like obviously, it would be way better if there was a federal sort of roadmap that was aimed at this transition. But, in the absence of that, you know, the state government is just going to go ahead and do it. And increasingly, in some areas, at least the industry is sort of coming on board. It's a bit trickier with the gas transition issue because the gas industry doesn't, doesn't, obviously doesn't like being made obsolete. Uh, so that's a tricky conversation. But on some other areas of energy policy, like, you know, the shift to more renewables and that sort of stuff, we've actually seen the industry come on board a lot more with the state government's plans because even they know that, you know, they've got to do something. So that's tricky with gas, but I, I think that, you know, Look, you know, the Feds. says we've got a lot of problems with the federal government at the moment, I think. Uh, this is just one of them, <laughs> and we're all used to doing it now. So, obviously, way better when they're on board, but until then, I guess we just go ahead and do it anyway.
0: Yeah, just do stuff. And I guess, you know, for those listening that might be just about to plan to replace an appliance or perhaps building a house at the moment or renovating, uh, I mean, the Victorian government starting this conversation is, is really sending a signal to say gas is on its way out um if if you were in that situation dean right now and you were seeking to um, find out a little bit more information where where would you go
1: yeah look uh renews website's got quite a lot of information on it uh and we've got reports on you know gas um gas versus electricity and the relative cost and that sort of stuff so that's at renew.org.au um Yeah, that's a great place. Uh, Sustainability Victoria actually has got some pretty good stuff on their website as well. Um, They've got a few mixed messages on there. They've still got a bit of stuff that's sort of contradictory on the benefits of gas and electricity in terms of economics and emissions, but it's getting better. Um, And, you know, ask around. There's a great group on Facebook called My Efficient Electric Home where they're just talking about homes and efficient appliances and problems with gas and getting off gas. Uh, it's really, really useful uh, information, that page. So there, there are a few of them, and yeah, as you mentioned, you know, Renew's done a bit of research in this area, and you know, it, it, just, it just is so clear now that you know, if you're buying a new home, it's a no-brainer to go all electric, it's just cheaper to run uh, for the lifetime of a, of a home. Uh, if you're doing a major renovation, it's a complete no-brainer to go off gas and put all electric appliances in. Uh, a bit of an extra cost up front, especially if you've got appliances that don't quite really need to be replaced, but that you you get your money back in a few years and you're getting possible towards zero emission. Uh, It's really quite a no-brainer. And look, a good thing for people to try if they're not sure, a lot of people have, like a gas heater and a reverse cycle air conditioner that they use just for cooling. Just try it for one winter. Don't use a gas heater. Turn on your reverse cycle air conditioner um, and you'll find that it does an awesome job and that it's way cheaper to run.
0: Thanks, Dean. Thank you. Uh, Dean Lombard, uh, he's with Renew. And uh, if you want to find out more information about what we're speaking about, you can head to Renew's website, renew.org.au. And uh, as mentioned, the Victorian government has started the conversation with us, uh, with households, um, really suggesting we will be moving buildings in Victoria off gas uh, and to become all electric. And this is in the aid of the state's uh, net zero emissions target, um, net zero by 20 2050 is the goal. Uh, I think we already, you know, did a story a couple of weeks ago that, that emissions target by uh, 2025, and then 2030 is pretty much a halving of our emissions here in the state by 2030, uh, and that means looking at gas.
3: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect hit us up via the Triple R website.